Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Annabella Breck, and today we'll be talking to A.S. Dillingham about his new book, Oaxaca Resurgent, Indigeneity, Development, and Inequality in 20th Century Mexico. Shane, welcome to the show. Thank you, Annabelle. I'm happy to be here. Shane, I wonder if you could kick things off today by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so. Um, I uh, am a uh, professor, assistant professor of history at Albright College, which is located in Reading, Pennsylvania. And um, I grew up in central Illinois, kind of halfway between Chicago and St. Louis. I, um, my mother's side of the family is from Illinois, and my father's side of the family uh, is from Oklahoma, southeastern Oklahoma. Um, and my father got there uh, to Illinois for work. So um, I grew up in central Illinois, and then um, I, while I was in high school, I spent a number of summers studying Spanish in um, Mexico, in Cuernavaca, um, Mexico, which is just outside of Mexico City. And so I was there in 1996 and 1997, which was shortly after the Zapatista uprising, um, which I think was kind of an important political and intellectual experience for me um, in terms of thinking about indigenous politics and indigenous history. Um, And then, of course, you know, on my father's side, my family from Oklahoma, uh, my grandfather is Choctaw. And so, you know, I grew up learning um, about the Trail of Tears, about kind of Indian country in southeastern Oklahoma and my grandfather's experience there and migrating to Texas for work. And so I think those kind of early experiences were formative in terms of developing my interests in Native American and indigenous issues. And then I ended up um, doing my uh, undergraduate and my PhD at the University of Maryland um, in, in College Park, Maryland. And so uh, I spent a number of years there. Um, and I finished my PhD in December of 2012 um, after working with a historian um, of uh, Mexico, Mary Kay Vaughn, uh, who is a historian of Mexican education, um, uh, along with other uh, faculty there. And so um, that's why I did my PhD. And then uh, I've taught, um, and since I finished my PhD, I taught for a year at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. And then I spent the last five years teaching in uh, the Deep South and at a college, a Jesuit college, Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama. Um, 
and um, then here in the fall of 2020, I started uh, my new job at Albright College. So hopefully that gives listeners a bit of a sense of, of where I came from. And how did you come to write Oaxaca Resurgent? That's a great question. Um, I think like many books or intellectual projects, uh, there was a kind of roundabout way in which I came to the topic. And so, um, you know, I started graduate school um, or applied to graduate school, really interested in um, the 1960s in the student movements that I had read about as an undergraduate um, in the United States, but also uh, student movements in Mexico um, the Mexico City student movement of um, 1968. Um, but in the summer of 2006, before I started the PhD program, I enrolled in a Mexican history uh, seminar, kind of workshop in Mexican uh, historiography uh, in Oaxaca City, in, uh, which is the state capital of Oaxaca in uh, a state in southern Mexico, um, which is just to the um, west of the state of Chiapas, and then beyond that, you know, Guatemala to the south. And so um, I was in Oaxaca in 2006, uh, participating in this academic seminar. And the seminar basically intersected with the annual teacher strike. Um, Oaxaca is a primarily kind of rural um, region, you know, low levels of industrialization. And so the teachers union in Oaxaca uh, has been uh, and is today the largest trade union in the state and exercised a kind of a lot of political influence. And so since 1980, and this is actually something I, I write about in the book, Oaxacan teachers had been striking on May 1st, uh, International Workers' Day. And then that strike would typically lead to negotiations with state and federal authorities over uh, you know, pay and other uh, workplace issues. And so by 2006, that strike was a relatively routine affair. Uh, it would involve the strike, negotiations, and uh, some settlement. But in 2006, the strike became kind of historic precisely because it didn't follow those routines. So uh, rather than uh, continue negotiations with the, um, with the teachers, the governor uh, at the time, who was a member of the Institutional Revolutionary Party or the PRI, uh, his name was Ulises Ruiz Ortiz, the governor basically called off negotiations with the teachers. He sent in riot police uh, to the teachers' encampment in the Zocalo or the, the traditional town square and had, you know, helicopters flying overhead shooting um, uh, tear gas and basically violently removed the teachers from their encampment. And so that repression basically spurned on uh, increased activism on the part of the teachers, but also Oaxacan society more broadly. And so over the course of the summer of 2006, that initial teacher strike really evolved into a mass movement. Um, and some people kind of compared it to the, the Paris Commune and called it the Oaxacan Commune, in which activists um, not only uh, you know, teachers were on strike, but the coalition of activists, which is called the APO or the Association of the um, um, uh, Different, the Popular Association of, of the People of Oaxaca, that coalition basically organized trash collection in the downtown, organized security, uh, seized uh, state radio uh, and TV stations, and controlled much of the Oaxacan capital um, for the summer. And so 
all of this was happening as I was participating in this graduate seminar. And so, you know, I think that the book really starts there in 2006 with me trying to understand what was happening around me, right? Why were the teachers striking? And then, um, you know, I had studied a bit of Mexican history and I understood that the, the teachers union historically had been aligned in kind of a, what scholars call a conveyor belt into the official party, the institutional revolutionary party. And so I, you know, I wanted to understand how was it that this teachers union in Oaxaca was a dissident teachers union that was independent of the ruling party and was in fact striking and and fighting against the ruling party. And so the book starts in 2006, um, you know, with me trying to understand what was happening around me. And then I, one of the ways that I started to think about the subject, and this was through conversations with Oaxacan intellectuals and academics, was to focus on the particular role of indigenous, uh, what were called bilingual teachers or uh, maestros bilingües, uh, which is official kind of position within um, the Ministry of Education. Uh, And Oaxacan intellectuals basically said, you know, Shane, you should look at these teachers because they form a dissident current within the union and have a kind of particular history uh, and political formation. And so as a way to try to get closer to those um, bilingual teachers, I began to study uh, Mixtec or Tu'unsavi, one of the main indigenous languages of Oaxaca, which has over 16 different officially recognized indigenous languages. And so I spent three years studying Mixtec um, as a way to get closer to the topic. Um, and in, so in that way, I, I started to connect with a whole network of indigenous teachers and language activists. And then that kind of language work made me think more about the history of what, you know, in Mexico and other parts of Latin America uh, is called indigenismo, right? Or this kind of state project of indigenous integration um, into, you know, national politics and economics. And so the book kind of starts in 2006. And then I start kind of look back chronologically over the course of the 20th century to think about these indigenista policies um, and where they come from, how they're kind of organized, and what I think most importantly for me, what their um, reception of indigenous communities and indigenous individuals was to these different policies. And so the kind of basic idea of the book is that these indigenista policies throughout particularly the second half of the 20th century are always being contested, negotiated, um, um, challenged by those marked as subjects of indigenista policies. And so that's kind of where the book came from. And then I try to tell the story of these indigenista policies in Oaxaca over the course of the, the 20th century. Yeah, let's start by talking about some of those policies. So in chapter one, you use these kind of mid-century anthropological reports to understand the aims of this Instituto Nacional Indigenista, which you also call the INI throughout the book, um, which is tries to establish a base in the Mixteca Alta. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what these reports were? Um, what kind of quote-unquote problems uh, the state singled out for development initiatives following World War II? Yeah, Annabella, um, I, I think you're highlighting an important part of the story. So this 
federal agency in Mexico, the Instituto Nacional Indigenista or the, the INI, the INI, um, becomes a really important uh, federal agency charged with basically the uplift of indigenous populations in Mexico. And the INI actually is a one of the most kind of ambitious agencies of its kind in Latin America. Um, lots of other Latin American governments um, start basically kind of copy uh, from the Mexican government's experience of starting the, the INI in 1948. And so you have indigenista agencies in Peru and Bolivia um, and other countries uh, throughout the Americas. Um, and so uh, the INI in Mexico begins in 1948 and is, I think, if, you know, you wanted to kind of understand the intellectual um, uh, kind of trajectory of the INI, the INI is combining kind of two different intellectual or kind of policy traditions. The first is that the INI is, you know, started in 1948, but part of a post-revolutionary state um, in Mexico, right? The Mexican Revolution of 1910 to 1920 uh, overthrows the Porfirian dictatorship, creates a new state, and that state is a state that is a very much a 20th century state. So the Mexican Constitution of 1917 um, guarantees a host of social rights, uh, including the right to public education, the right to join a union, the right to health care, uh, what we would kind of call social security in the United States. And so the INI is kind of drawing on this tradition of the post-revolutionary state and in particular agrarian reform. That is, you know, the need to uh, have a more just uh, and equitable distribution of land in Mexico. And so the INI is kind of part of that legacy uh, of the post-revolutionary state but it's also in 1948 and into the 1950s and beyond is drawing on kind of a, a series of ideas that we would associate with modernization theory or the rise of development, right, as a kind of way of thinking about social problems. And so I think uh, you can understand the INI by thinking about these two different uh, traditions that it's drawing on. And so the INI, in the case of Oaxaca, it arrives as an institution in 1954, but prior to that, as you mentioned, the INI develops a series of regional studies of this highland region of Oaxaca, which is located in the western part of the state, uh, called the Mixteca Alta. And so it, it organizes these um, regional development studies to basically, as a kind of reconnaissance uh, project, to then inform its development work in the region in the decades that will follow. And so those uh, regional studies, there's kind of two big ones. One is led by a, a number of anthropologists uh, at the time um, who are doing kind of ethnographic studies of the highlands. Um, they're doing these studies on horseback. They're uh, visiting different communities in the highlands. They're taking demographic data, you know, population information. Uh, they're interested in questions of public health, um, education. They're interested in, as I mentioned before, this question of land tenure, you know, who has land, what kind of quality uh, the land um, uh, is the land, um, and um, is that kind of a, a just situation or they're small number of people holding large um, tracts of land. 
And then there's another uh, regional study that's run by an economist who's basically this kind of post-revolutionary uh, economist, a kind of nationalist. You might call him a left nationalist economist by the name of Moises de la Peña. And so these regional studies, you know, are conducted in the late 1940s, early 1950s in anticipation of the INI's arrival. And, you know, they have a number of kind of conclusions uh, that are specific. One is that, you know, there is a lack of primary school educational opportunities in the Mixteca, um, that there are few federal schools. Um, there are some schools that are run by state um, appointed teachers. And then there are schools that are run by the Catholic Church. And so the ENI is concerned about the lack of educational opportunities. Um, and they're particularly concerned about the lack of people who speak Spanish, the national language. People in the Mixteca Alta speak, as I mentioned before, Mixtec, Tunsavi, or uh, Triqui, which is another indigenous language, um, along with there's, um, there's more that we could mention. And so, so, you know, a number of the, the policies are concerned with this lack of, um, according to these government workers, the lack of ability to um, speak the national language. Um, but they're also concerned with um, a, the inequality of access to land. And so they do think that there are small um, handfuls of wealthy uh, people in the Mixteca who own large amounts of land. And then they're concerned about the quality of the land. And so the, the highland region is one with high levels of erosion. Um, and so they're concerned about the population's ability to feed itself. And so, um, you know, all of these kind of discrete development diagnoses lead these thinkers to the conclusion, which is one that was quite popular at the time, that the Mixteca Alta suffer, suffered from what they called overpopulation, Right. Um, so the idea that the region itself couldn't sustain a growing population. Um, and so that diagnosis that the region is overpopulated is a diagnosis that's going to inform a lot of the development work that the federal government um, will implement in subsequent decades. Um, I think the, the one other thing that I would mention about these early anthropological works are that while a number of these reports identified structural kind of causes of inequality and poverty in the Mixteca, so they argued that people didn't have good access to land or quality land. They also, for example, in examining uh, mining, there was um, antimony mines in the Mixteca in the 1940s that were in part connected to World War II um, they argued that those mines basically were extractive industries that, you know, employed people at low wages. And then the profits of those industries were taken outside of the region to the mining companies, owners in Mexico City or beyond. And so while some of the, the, these regional reports diagnosed the, the origins of these problems as basically structural, right, as the way that the... Um, economy is organized or way that the Mixteca Alta is integrated into a national economy, much of the policy uh, uh, kind of designs later on focused on changing the behavior of the population, right? And so I think that 
is something that a lot of people who work on mid-century development would kind of note is that even though some of these individuals noted these kind of broader structural problems, at the end of the day, what they started to implement were policies to change the behavior of basically poor people in the Mixteca Alta. And so I think that even when some of these anthropologists were attentive to cultural difference uh, in terms of the indigenous character of the population, many of them did say, ultimately kind of equate indigeneity with poverty. And so a way to overcome that poverty was to overcome the indigenous character of the region. So a figure like I mentioned before, Moises de la Peña, this economist, who's a kind of progressive left-wing economist doing one of these studies, at the end of the day, he thinks that indigenous people need to basically become class-conscious campesinos. They need to learn Spanish. They need to struggle against uh, these economic inequalities. And so he doesn't really have much space for um, respecting or valorizing the cultural pluralism of the region. Yeah, if we could talk about language, that would be great. Um, Because in chapter two, you give this really rich overview of kind of the context behind a pilot radio program launched by the ENI um, in the Mixteca region. Um, And the Catholic Church gets involved and you kind of show this competition um, over, you know, what is going to happen to indigenous Oaxacans um, in the subsequent decades. Um, And this eruption between the church and the state over claiming local authority um, unfolds. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about this radio program um, and about these language initiatives and how local communities are responding um, to that program and the issues that arise from it? Sure. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I do think that, as you mentioned, language is a kind of key marker for the Mexican federal government to decide who and who is not indigenous, right? Basically, that's the way they're organizing the the census for most of the 20th century is they uh, evaluate the indigenous population based on someone's language ability, whether they speak or do not speak an indigenous language. Um, And so they use that, that kind of language as a barometer for a host of other issues. And so it becomes very important in terms of federal policy. And so, as I mentioned, and you know, the INI arrives in the highlands in the Mixteca Alta in 1954, and one of the major kind of interventions that the agency seeks to make is to reform education in the region. And they first think that there's a kind of lack of um, infrastructure for education. That is, there's a lack of qualified teachers. There's a lack of federal schools, and so to kind of solve that problem of capacity, they turn to radio and in particular shortwave radio as a kind of technological solution to this problem of the lack of capacity of the ministry of education. And, you know, this makes sense, right? In the 1950s, there's a lot of excitement that radio as a technology could solve certain problems. And as I describe in the, the chapter in chapter two of the book, you know, this is this, radio school program in the Mixteca is part of a whole series of experimental indigenous radio throughout the hemisphere, right? And so there's indigenous language radio from, you know, Oklahoma in the United States to Mexico, to Guatemala, to Bolivia, uh, throughout the hemisphere. There's ways in which people in the 1950s are experimenting with radio 
and indigenous languages. And so in the Mixteca Alta, the Ini taps a um, Mixtec teacher, uh, a federally trained teacher uh, by the name of Ramon Hernandez Lopez to run what it calls a, a, a pilot radio program in which there will be a um, radio broadcasting teacher, uh, Ramon Hernandez Lopez, um, broadcasting from Tlaxiaco, the, the district capital of the Mixteca Alta. And then there will be what they call auxiliary teachers um, uh, working in individual communities and in kind of remote areas of the highlands who will be facilitating the classroom teaching with a uh, shortwave radio receiver. And then they will basically mimic or follow the instructions that Hernandez Lopez uh, um, provides through the radio broadcast. And so this was meant to solve the problem of capacity, but the other kind of innovation that the INI and Hernandez Lopez make is that they use Mixtec on the radio. And so rather than the broadcast being entirely in Spanish, Hernandez Lopez conducts the lesson in both Mixtec and Spanish. And this is meant to be a kind of bridge, a way to connect with these Mixtec speaking communities, but also facilitate their increasing acquisition of Spanish, the national language. And so, you know, this program is an experimental one. It receives, a, I think, a, a lot of early success in the sense that um, a lot of um, teachers sign up, communities sign up, parents come to watch this kind of innovative program. Uh, and there is a lot of popular demand for access to education in the Mixteca. And so I think that in that way, the radio school program is popular. One of the issues that is more controversial is the question of bilingual instruction. And so there are Mixtec indigenous communities at the time who are skeptical of the fact that um, teachers would teach Mixtec, right? Um, and this might be in part because of parents' own experiences with Spanish-only education, but one of the stories that I tell is that when Ramon Hernandez Lopez proposes this bilingual program uh, to the community assembly of his hometown, which is a, a town south of Tlaxiaco, a town called San Agustin Tlacotepec, one of the town elders, uh, after Hernandez Lopez, you know, kind of gives the pitch for why they should teach with a bilingual method, one of the town elders, you know, raises his hand and and of responds and he says, you know, pinche Ramon, you know, like damn Ramon, you know, we sent you to Mexico City to, he says, um, so you could op, um, learn la Castilla or Castellano, right? This kind of colonial way of, of referring to Spanish. And now you come back saying you want to teach our children Mixtec, right? And so I think one of the issues that the chapter highlights there is that there's not kind of uniform opinion among indigenous communities in the Mixteca that bilingual instruction is a positive thing. Um, and so Ramon Hernandez Lopez has to kind of make that argument among some communities. But the other kind of major challenge, which, you know, you mentioned in your question is that the INI is one of the first federal agencies to really do kind of um, uh, sustained 
development work in the region. And so it's one of the first time that federal agencies are kind of competing with local authorities. And one of the most important local authorities in the Mixteca Alta or in the Highland region is the Catholic Church. Um, and so the Catholic Church obviously has been around since, you know, the early days of the conquest in the Mixteca Alta. Um, the Dominican, you know, Catholic order is one of the most important ones uh, in the Mixteca and responsible for a number of seminaries uh, in the region. And then, you know, in the aftermath of the Mexican Revolution, there's a, a kind of conservative response to the Mexican Revolution, which itself was kind of anti-clerical. And so um, many of the Catholic authorities in the Mixteca Alta are aligned with what you would call this kind of Cristero tradition of conservative Catholic opposition to federal authority. And so um, the INI basically finds itself in competition with that Catholic Church. And that Catholic Church itself had spent quite a bit of time trying to achieve authority in the region. And one of the things the Catholic Church did itself was develop bilingual, um, you know, uh, catechisms in both Spanish and Mixtec. And so, you know, the federal government isn't the first institution to experiment with indigenous language instruction. Um, the Catholic Church uh, precedes it. And then the Catholic Church in the 1950s, um, as the ENI is developing this program, particularly at the end of the 1950s, the Catholic Church itself is kind of shaped by a renewed um, conservative uh, politics of anti-communism, right? And so obviously the Cold War is kind of heating up throughout uh, the world and throughout the hemisphere. And so this Catholic Church um, in the Mixteca Alta increasingly views the INI and the federal government in Mexico through the lens of anti-communism. They actually think that the, the federal government is kind of populated by communists, by socialists, um, and, you know, there were left-wing figures within uh, the ENI and within other federal agencies, but the Catholic Church kind of exaggerates that uh, in a kind of caricatured nature. And so figures like Ramon Hernandez Lopez, who are trying to institute a series of reforms in the Mixteca in the late 1950s and early 1960s, find that some of their fiercest opponents are Catholic priests and um, Catholic activists. And so... Uh, you know, we, um, you know, we're recording this interview just after the um, anniversary of the Mexican Independence Day. Uh, and, you know, in 1958, um, excuse me, in 1961, Ramon Hernandez Lopez gave a speech on Mexican Independence Day uh, in the fall of that year. And basically, while he was giving that speech in Tlaxiaco, in the capital of the Mixteca Alta, um, he's attacked by Catholic activists who use the church's loudspeakers to call on the people to come out and um, challenge this atheist and this communistic teacher. And so the Mexican army eventually has to be called in to protect Ramon Hernandez Lopez and the ENI installations. And so you see how both the church and the ENI are basically these two competing authorities in the region. Um, and both are invested in this question of indigenous education, although with very kind of different ends. And so, you know, I try to kind of tell that story in chapter two. Um, and, 
think about the way in which both institutions are trying to reckon with kind of indigenous alterity in the region. Um, and uh, they're doing so kind of for different ends, um, but both have to kind of uh, navigate a similar terrain. Yeah, speaking of terrain, no pun intended, um, I want to go back to uh, some of your comments that you were making about this matter of kind of land and modernization. Um, And in chapter three, you look at government efforts to integrate communities living in the Alta um, and relocate them to the Costa Chica's uh, coastal coastal region. Um, Not only does the Eni fail to achieve its aims in this kind of modernization relocation project, um, but these relocation efforts prompt communities in the Alta and on the coast to seriously question the Eni's intentions and capacity um, for affecting change. So why was this program, this relocation program, its failures and the responses to it such a critical turning point for the Eni and broader discourses surrounding Indigenismo? Yeah, that's a great question, Annabelle. Um, I mean, I think the one way to understand this is, as I mentioned before, right, the the Eni's um, um, diagnosis of the kind of problems of this indigenous highland region, the Mixteca Alta, in the mid-1950s is that this is an overpopulated region, right, that there's too many people for the land to support. And so, you know, this is a period, you know, people like, you know, James Scott have described this as kind of high modernist development, right? These ideas that the kind of state can intervene and solve uh, development issues in a kind of a straightforward way. Well, the straightforward way that the Mexican government thinks that it will solve this problem is, well, if the Mixteca Alta is overpopulated, has too many people and not enough resources to support that population, that they will just move that population to a region that has better resources and fewer people. And so they're, what they, the plan that they kind of develop is that they'll move this highland population from western, the western part of Oaxaca down to the Pacific coast of Oaxaca, uh, which is oftentimes called the Costa Chica. Um, and then as you move east um, along the coast, you would get towards the isthmus uh, of Tehuantepec and eventually to Guatemala. And so they have this kind of simple, you know, what you might say, call high modernist um, development plan, which is we'll move one part of the population down to the region where there's few people and rich resources. And, you know, Oaxaca's Pacific coast is a place with, you know, large coastal plains that might be more ideal for commercial agriculture or, um, you know, cattle industries, uh, grazing, et cetera. And so um, that project is, is also part of a bigger kind of development idea in Mexico, which is called the Marcha al Mar or the March to the Sea, in which in the 1950s and 1960s, Mexican federal authorities seek to develop Mexico's two very large coastal regions, right? The Pacific Coast and the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, Mexico has a very extended, you know, you know coastline. And so, their idea is that they will develop these regions um, through populating them and also through uh, modernizing ports, um, et cetera. And so 
the government attempts to do this in the Mixteca. And, uh, you know, as I describe in chapter three of the book, they go about, including this individual that I mentioned before, Ramon Hernandez Lopez, they go about touring Mixteca Alta communities and kind of giving the pitch that the federal government will provide land um, and agricultural credits to those who uh, agree to move south to the Pacific coast. And um, they do this in the late 50s through the mid-1960s. And, you know, they have some success. Some communities say they will go or individuals say they will go. There are certain requirements. Um, you know, they um, need people to be of a certain age, basically working age um, adults. Uh, they want people to be bilingual in Spanish and their native language. I mean, they want people to, to kind of be proficient in Spanish. And so this limits some of the people who can participate. Um, and then they also have a requirement that basically you need to be in need of land, right? A kind of landless peasant. And so they go about promoting the project uh, in the late 1950s throughout um, the Mixteca Alta. And they are able to bring some people down to the coast. Um, but I think, you know, the project is beset by a number of problems. Um, one is that there's a kind of lack of federal investment in the project. And so even though there's this kind of ambitious idea of planned resettlement from the highlands to the coast, there's not a lot of uh, financial support to actually move um, these families um, down to the coast. Um, and so the logistics of doing so are complicated. Uh, they bring some families down. Uh, a number of people you know, just outright resist the program. They, they say they don't want to move to the coast um, because this is a kind of permanent resettlement. And then, you know, the other problem that I describe at length in the book is that, you know, the Costa Chica of Oaxaca is not a place without population. It's actually, there are people who live there. Um, and in particular, there are a number of Afro-Mexican communities um, spread out throughout the Costa Chica. Um, and these communities didn't really seem to figure into federal development plans, um, which I think is important to note and to kind of reflect on. And so while federal planners argued that the Costa Chica was basically this fertile coastal plain right for development, uh, they didn't basically acknowledge the fact that there were significant populations on the coast who had been there, you know, for centuries. And many of them were of, you know, African descent. And so those communities don't really figure into federal plans. And when they do move these mixed deck families from the highlands down to the coast, basically those families in short order come in conflict with these communities and in particular with a kind of uh, authoritarian political power in the region, uh, which is organized in um, the town of Hamiltepec, um, through a family, which is um, the Iglesias Mesa family. And so there is a particular um, figure uh, that I talk about in chapter three, this um, Doña Pancha, who is a basically a casica kind of um, um, authoritarian figure in the region who controls um, economic and political power and also uses some of these Afro-Mexican um, communities to um, challenge um, these new mixed-tech migrants who are being resettled by the federal government. And so that conflict plays out over um, the mid to late 60s. And basically, you know, the ENI 
is unable to challenge this, um, the kind of landed interest on the Costa Chica. Um, and it, evas- it devolves into a kind of violent conflict in which people die. Um, some of the resettled mixed migrants move back to the highlands. Um, and so uh, I think it kind of demonstrates the inability of the Eni to really kind of foment the the large scale development designs that it, some of its planners kind of imagine. And the other thing that I mentioned in the chapter is that this is actually a period of growing migration uh, from the highlands to other parts of Mexico, right? And so while the federal government is trying to get these highlanders to move south to the Pacific coast, it's actually the the fact is that many mixed communities are migrating um, seasonally to work in agricultural industries in the state of Veracruz, uh, in Mexico City, and to points further north in places like Baja California, um, and Sinaloa, and Sonora. And so, you know, one of the ways I talk about this in the chapter is I think that the federal government doesn't really reckon with the fact that many members of these indigenous communities are not interested in permanent resettlement, which the federal government is offering. Um, because they don't want to leave their community and that community identity and community kind of participation and rights and obligations are really kind of crucial for these mixed deck communities in the highlands. And so instead, you know, many mixed deck individuals migrate seasonally to say Baja California to work in agriculture because they know that they can eventually come back to their home communities. And so that really becomes an accelerated dynamic of capitalist development in the next few decades in which there is basically the emergence of Oaxacan diaspora across Mexico and then into the United States. And this indigenista, you know, planned resettlement initiative of moving mixed families down to the uh, Pacific coast really um, doesn't work. Um, And so, you know, I think that hopefully that helps answer your question about this moment in terms of um, the end of a particular phase of indigenista uh, development efforts. Yeah, for sure. That was that was great. And that's a nice segue into talking about your next chapter where you kind of usher us into this new phase in the late 60s and the 1970s when debates over the future of the indigenista project kind of rupture on an ideological basis. Um, And here you look specifically at the experiences and growth of Oaxacan youth who use reformism to their advantage um, to advance this kind of new politics of liberation. I was wondering if we can talk more about these efforts and where they fit into Pan-American and third world currents of anti-colonialism at mid-century. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you're right that this kind of at the end of the 1960s, the beginning of the 1970s, there is a, a, what we might call a rupture in indigenista politics. And so um, while Ramon Hernandez Lopez was this, you know, indigenous participant in indigenista policies and was seeking to use the state to enact reforms and improve indigenous people's lives, Um, a younger generation that's coming of age in the late 60s and early 70s, they take a very different view of indigenista policy. And so rather than viewing the state as a way to challenge 
colonialism or the legacies of kind of colonial inequalities, this younger generation actually see the state as sees the state as facilitating kind of what they call internal colonialism, right? And so this is part of a kind of political effervescence that is taking place throughout the hemisphere in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, You know, you could find parallels in the, you know, American Indian movement in the United States in which indigenous youth in the United States are challenging, you know, corrupt Bureau of Indian Affairs tribal governments. There's a kind of reckoning with um, the existing... um, indigenous leadership and a a kind of challenge in Mexico that takes place as well. And um, the way I kind of look at that is by looking at a generation of young people uh, who are employed as basically development brokers, right? Um, Promotores bilingües or bilingual promoters. And the generation that I look at, they basically are employed by a regional or a state level development agency. Um, and they're employed in similar projects that, you know, the ENI was involved in, um, you know, education, public health, agricultural development. And so this generation of indigenous youth is recruited to be agents of development. And one of the things that they have to also, um, one of their characteristics that they have to have in terms of being employed as an agent of development is to be bilingual in a native language. And so this is a period, you know, in the 1960s and 1970s, where increasingly you see larger and larger numbers of indigenous youth being contracted, in part because of their bilingualism, which I think becomes important, right? That they're actually, bilingualism is incentivized in this period uh, for a certain group of people because they development policy and policymakers believe that they need bilingual agents to enact the, the kind of... Um, development projects that they're, they're seeking to enact. And so in um, this chapter, I follow this generation of indigenous youth as they're contracted to be bilingual um, um, development agents. But I look at how they, you know, are trained by a group of dissident social scientists, um, many of them who had participated in the 1968 student movement in Mexico City, who were part of kind of radical politics of one variety or the other, you know, whether they were you know, Marxists or, you know, some of them were interested in Maoist politics in the 1970s, or Trotskyism. Um, there is a way in which the ideas of Carlos Mariategui, the Peruvian kind of Marxist thinker, um, and other um, figures like Hugo Blanco in Peru and uh, people who are interested in both revolutionary politics, but also kind of centering indigenous communities, that political current becomes quite popular among Oaxacan youth. Um, And so, you know, I think what's really interesting is that a lot of the indigenous youth that I look at in that chapter are trying to engage in a radical politics that is about transforming Mexican society or transforming global politics, but they are trying to do that by also connecting with indigenous, you know, traditions, community traditions, uh, collective traditions of, of communal governance. And so, you know, one of the ideas that's kind of percolating in Oaxaca in the 1970s is an idea that a uh, kind of theory of, of politics that's called comunalidad, right, or communality. And that is really one in which co- 
a theory that connects the kind of radical politics of radical social transformation of uh, kind of anti-capitalism with the indigenous traditions of Oaxaca or other parts of Mexico that are about communal self-governance and mutual aid. And so, you know, in the 1970s, you see this generation develop that set of kind of anti-colonial politics. And then they're also, you know, taking advantage of, and you mentioned this in your question, taking advantage of a period of political reform in Mexico that's associated with the presidency of Luisa Echevarria from 1970 to 1976. And, you know, this is a period in which Luisa Echevarria is overseeing, overseeing what he calls the, the democratic opening of Mexico, in which there are a series of federal reforms that are about more competition in elections that is allowing for parties other than the official party to compete more fairly in, you know, local, uh, state, et cetera, elections. Um, it was a period of, um, uh, opening up of the Mexican media and allowing for more dissident media in Mexico. Um, it's an expansion of education in the 1970s under Luisa Echeverria. And so, um, this is a period in which there's all sorts of federal reforms taking place. At the same time, the federal government is engaged in a dirty war, that is a kind of violent counterinsurgency against armed dissidents in places like the state of Guerrero, which neighbors Oaxaca to its west. And so it's a contradictory period. But one of the things I try to show is that indigenous youth in Oaxaca take advantage of that period of, of reformism to try to um, create alternative spaces for indigenous education and development. And they are, by the mid-1970s, successful in winning um, kind of permanent positions within the Ministry of Education as bilingual teachers. So rather than being this kind of auxiliary teacher that I mentioned earlier, where you're a kind of a part-time contract teacher, by the mid-1970s, this group of radicalized indigenous youth win um, full-time positions as bilingual teachers and fight for the kind of professionalization of that position. And so uh, I think that's a kind of important story of indigenous activism in the 1970s that um, we haven't given enough attention to yet. And I think there is, not just in Mexico, but beyond, there's a lot of indigenous activism in the 1970s um, that's worth us um, exploring further to understand later developments uh, at the end of the 20th century. Yeah, and you follow these teachers all the way to the heart of Mexican politics in Chapter 5, where you argue that the Oaxacan teachers pushed to democratize Section 22 um, and increase their wages, open new doors in educational politics. How did the teachers' movement succeed, and what did their movement mean for Mexican politics? Right, yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, Mexican politics in the 1970s, at the end of the 1970s in particular, um, enter a kind of period of crisis, which is that the Institutional Revolutionary Party or the PRI that had governed Mexico basically since the post-revolutionary period um, and had governed Mexico basically through, um, you know, a combination of concessions to popular demands and repression when it deemed necessary, um, 
that kind of um, political project starts to unravel at the end of the 1970s, that kind of authoritarian political project. And so if one of the ways that the pre controlled Mexican politics was through popular organizations, that is the, the pre dominated, you know, campesino um, federations or popular organizations of, uh, of neighborhood assemblies uh, or trade unions that starts to come undone at the end of the 1970s. Um, and that happens in different industries, but it also happens in the education sector. And so um, for most of the 20th century, the pre controlled the teachers union and the way um, politics in Mexico would work is that, you know, if I was an ambitious teacher, I might join the teachers union and, um, I might eventually use my position in the teachers union to become a municipal president. And then if it went well for me, I might use that to become a, um, a federal congressman and through the institutional revolutionary party. And I would kind of use that as a stepping, a step ladder up to kind of higher echelons of politics. And so that kind of, authoritarian political culture comes undone in the 1970s um, maybe for two reasons, if we can, if we can put it that simply. The first is that the policies under Echeverria, which involved large scale state spending um, and also uh, borrowing international borrowing. And um, this was in part fueled by the idea that Mexico had larger and larger oil reserves that it could, um, tap, that kind of state spending starts to reach its limits with the economic crisis in the mid-1970s, which is a global economic crisis of inflation and stagflation in the United States. Uh, and basically what it means concretely in Mexico is that the Mexican government um, isn't paying teachers' salaries. So, you know, if I'm a teacher in the Mexican um, you know, Ministry of Education in 1976, 1977, 1978, there might be times where I don't receive a paycheck for two months, three months, four months, five months. Um, paychecks are not coming. And so the cost of living is rising because of inflation in Mexico. And then um, the teachers are not being paid uh, on a consistent basis. And so that proves a kind of explosive combination in the public sector. Um, and then the particular role that I kind of show that indigenous teachers play in this struggle is that indigenous teachers in the mid-1970s had to fight just to become incorporated into the Ministry of Education. And so when this economic crisis hits at the end of the 1970s, and there's this kind of crisis of incipient austerity, indigenous teachers in the trade union are already kind of mobilized and politicized. And so the Oaxacan teachers who are trying to fight for better wages for, you know, consistent pay, they are um, increasingly led by indigenous teachers who had already had to fight in the previous years to just be full members of the teachers union. And because the teacher union leadership had always been aligned with the pre 
the leadership did not challenge those policies of austerity and the lack of consistent pay. And so what develops at the end of the 1970s and throughout the 1980s in Mexico is a struggle that is for better wages and and consistent pay, but then increasingly a struggle for democracy within the union. And so those two things go together because the pre-aligned trade union leadership wasn't challenging austerity because they were aligned with top level officials. And so that those two issues are really the kind of drivers for this massive um, movement in Mexican education throughout the south of the country, um, but particularly in places like Oaxaca and Chiapas, in which there is this teacher insurgency demanding democratization of their union, that is democratic control of the union in opposition to the pre-aligned leadership, but also better pay uh, and benefits. And so Dissident teachers are organizing in Oaxaca uh, throughout the end of the 1970s. You know, there's all sorts of uh, government spy documents that, um, you know, the, basically the Mexican equivalent of the FBI, the Dirección Federal de Seguridad, is spying on these dissident teachers. They're worried about their attempts to remove uh, the pre-aligned leadership from their union. Um, and those teachers through basically using popular assemblies, mass mobilizations, marches, a whole series of kind of grassroots democratic tactics, they are able eventually by uh, the beginning of the 1980s to get rid of the pre-aligned leadership and effectively democratize the Oaxacan Teachers um, Union, which is, as you mentioned, Section 22 of the National Cente. Um, and so it's a kind of long-standing struggle um, that takes place over years. Um, it's successful in the state of Oaxaca in 1980 in terms of wresting control from the pre-leadership. But then there is the national um, union that continues to be dominated by um, the pre-aligned um, union leadership. And so Oaxacan teachers throughout the early and mid-1980s are part of a national movement to democratize um, the union. And, um, and so, you know, that is part of a, a bigger period of democratic expression in Mexico. And eventually, you know, in 2000, the PRI will lose um, the, the presidency. And um, that will be the first time, you know, since basically um, the pre's ascendance that you will have a non-pre president in the form of Vicente Fox from the, the National Action Party, who's elected in 2000. As you kind of started to allude to in your response, all of this kind of culminates in a number of indigenous-centered political pushes in the 1990s, um, which is the focus of your final chapter. Um, here is where many Oaxacan activists continue to seize upon these kind of openings um, in in national political circumstances, but um, also seize upon this moment's kind of multicultural turn as an opportunity to achieve more education reform, um, language revitaliz revitalization, and more. And as you put it so well in your conclusion, you tell us that we shouldn't let, quote, the limitations of official multiculturalism obscure the history that produced it. And so I want to end with what you call the double bind of indigenismo, which is kind of this uh, common grammar of your book. Um, 
What does this deeper history behind multiculturalism in the 90s tell us about the opportunities and limitations of anti-colonial indigenous-centered politics through the second half of the century? Um, and did you find that it was difficult to balance between those limitations and opportunities while you were researching and writing your book? Yeah, um, I mean, I think the, you're raising kind of some of the key arguments of the book and some of the big dilemmas that I think face indigenous politics and indigenous peoples um, in the second half of the 20th century. And so, I mean, I think maybe I can try to talk about first the way I handled the question of indigenista policies and then kind of related to that, the rise of what we would call kind of forms of official multiculturalism at the end of the 20th century. And, you know, so, you know, that there's a kind of orthodox critique of indigenismo in Latin America that I think kind of coalesces in the late 60s and early 1970s, in part through that generation that I was describing earlier, right? And so activists and intellectuals have basically argued that indigenismo is a state project that is about the incorporation of indigenous peoples into a, a national uh, politics and economics. And while it superficially celebrates kind of certain parts of indigenous culture and aesthetics, it ultimately is a project that's aligned with mestizaje or racial mixture. And that is a project that celebrates whiteness, right? And so even as indigenismo makes these superficial gestures towards these indigenous subjects, at the end of the day, it is a state project of incorporation um, that treats indigenous people in a folkloric way um, and is ultimately, you know, about incorporating them into a political project that has as its end kind of whiteness as a goal. Um, I think that critique kind of starts in the late 60s, early 1970s, and that critique remains, um, I think, a, a valid critique, but also a kind of popular dominant way of thinking about indigenismo. And while I sympathize with that critique very much, I found it in some ways unsatisfactory as a historical analysis because it didn't seem to really give much agency or um, uh, primacy to those marked as subjects of indigenista policy, right? It seemed to kind of overstate the state's um, power and underestimate the ability of indigenous peoples um, in all their diversity to advocate for themselves, to interact, to you know, at, you know, to challenge, to negotiate, to selectively embrace, and so. You know, I think part of what I try to do with the book and this concept that I, you know, drawing on other scholars, you know, I call the double bind of indigenismo is that while indigenismo involves this state, you know, selective celebration of indigeneity, um, which is, uh, you know, a, a superficial at best, indigenous peoples were never silent. Uh, in terms of indigenista policy, and we're always challenging it in different ways. And so, you know, what I try to do is say, look, we can't understand the history of indigenista policy without looking at the way that indigenous peoples have participated in it. Um, like Ramon Hernandez Lopez is a, a mixtec indigenista bureaucrat, right? So kind of looking at their experiences 
and then also understanding how they shape the trajectory of indigenista policy over time. Um, and, you know, so uh, that's the kind of my take on indigenismo in terms of some of the scholarly debates of it. The way that I think the debates and discussions about the rise of multiculturalism at the end of the 20th century have taken place. Um, you know, I think the, the orthodox critique of multiculturalism is similar to that of neoliberalism in that multiculturalism has been a way that national governments, whether it's the Mexican government or the Bolivian government or the U.S. government, um, at the end of the 20th century, the, you know, the International Labor Organization, other international institutions, they all start to embrace what we might call cultural pluralism, right? That there, you know, maybe we have a, a pluricultural country, we have peoples from different um, uh, indigenous backgrounds, people who speak different languages. And so, you know, you see a series of legislative initiatives and constitutional reforms, whether it's in Mexico or in other countries, that embrace that cultural pluralism um, and say offer bilingual education or you know access to state services and in indigenous languages. There's different versions of it. And I think most of the scholarly accounts of this have stressed the way that that multiculturalism uh, arises at the same time as we see uh, economic policies that people, for better or worse, describe as kind of neoliberalism. Right, that multiculturalism is about talking about cultural difference, but it is also connected to an economic project that is uh, in no way challenging existing economic inequalities. And in fact, economic inequalities are only becoming exasperated at the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st century. And so I think that is a fair critique of what people call, you know, and like the anthropologist Charles Hale is kind of maybe the most famous in kind of denouncing this neoliberal multiculturalism. Um, and I think that that critique has a lot going for it, but I think that the problem with that critique is it doesn't really reckon with some of the activism that we discussed earlier that takes place among indigenous people and their allies in the 1970s, in which some of the demands in the 1970s were about inclusion into national politics, were about bilingual education, about indigenous development that respected the structures of indigenous communal governance, et cetera, and that some of those demands are actually achieved with some of the multicultural reforms, reforms in the 1980s and 1990s. And so, you know, what I wanted to do was tell a story, not just of a kind of narrative of defeat, that somehow neoliberal multiculturalism is a defeat for indigenous activists, but rather to think about how um, concessions went both ways. And there were ways in which national governments, including the government of Mexico, actually conceded to indigenous demands and their multicultural policies weren't just a kind of savvy way that neoliberals um, reorganized their rule, but they actually had to concede certain demands. And I think that that's useful for us in terms of thinking about kind of contingency in, in, in human history but also it's useful for us to think about in terms of imagining alternative futures. And so, um, you know, I think that those are my kind of two big takes on this, the history of indigenismo and that of multiculturalism. 
Yeah, and Oaxaca Resurgent definitely makes both of those arguments in very compelling ways. Well, Shane, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we wrap up, I just have one last question. What are you working on now? Thank you, Annabelle. Um, well, so the one of the projects that I'm working on now kind of came out of the research for this first book, Oaxaca Resurgent, and that is you know, when I was looking at the experience of that planned relocation project of Mixteca Alta families from the highlands down to the Pacific coast, you know, I came upon this um, violent conflict between the relocated Mixtec families, this authoritarian political figure um, who ran the Costa Chica from Jamiltepec, and then these Afro-Mexican communities. And so you know, I talk a bit about that in the book, but I do think that that is a story that probably deserves um, kind of uh, special attention. And because it involves this project of tropical development at mid-century, kind of um, the development of the Mexican coasts, um, and then it also develops, it, it also kind of involves this nexus between indigeneity and blackness in Mexico. And so you know, I think there's a lot of scholarship, really good scholarship that looks at the history of um, Afro-diasporic peoples in Mexico in the colonial period. And then there's been a lot of anthropological work recently, kind of in terms of activist anthropology, uh, advocating for Black communities in Mexico today. But the kind of Black presence in mid-century Mexico has really, you know, not been represented in the scholarship. And so, no, I'm kind of interested in following that story of these on the Costa Chica of Black and Indigenous relations, you know, tropical development and authoritarian political power um, at mid-century. And so my plan is to continue um, researching that story, both through kind of ethnographic research as well as um, archival methods. Awesome. That sounds like another really excellent and thought-provoking project. Shane, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you, Annabelle.